Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Matthew chapter 21, verses 12 to 17 is where we're going to be this morning, Matthew 21, 12 to 17. Well, if you have children, you have had children, or you know children, which should be just about everybody in here, you'll, you'll know that one of the lessons that you teach a kid as they're growing up in your house is you teach them to apologize. And I'm going to tell you right now that it's a difficult task to teach a kid to apologize. Now, it's easy if you just want them to say, I'm sorry. Because you can get them to do that, I mean, for, for, for practically anything. For a goldfish, you can, you can tell them, hey, say you're sorry. What do we say? I'm sorry. It's like saying thank you. You know, what do you say? Thank you. You know, it's, just, it's the same thing. You can easily get them to say I'm sorry. It's getting them to mean it that's the challenge. It's impossible, I've found, to teach your kid sincerity. It's easy to teach them to say, I'm sorry. It's impossible to teach them sincerity. It it can't be taught. If they don't feel empathy for what they've just done to the other person, they're not going to say it sincerely. I mean, they could cut off their brother's hand, and still they come out, sorry. It's crazy, but you can't teach your kid, sincerity. And so we tell our kids all the time, look, you can go through the motions all day, but if it's not sincere, it's not real. Jesus, in our passage this morning, is going to enter into the temple, and He's going to find in the temple this commercial atmosphere. An atmosphere that is completely and totally foreign to the temple, to what the temple is really supposed to be. And what he's going to find there is that that atmosphere is created and is indicative of of a people that are overall insincere in their worship. Let's read our scripture this morning out of Matthew chapter 21, 12-17. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer. You have made it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, They were indignant, and they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouth mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out uh, out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would open our hearts to understand the word that you have laid out for us here. Pray that we would understand it truly, that we would apply it to our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Throughout Matthew, there's been this battle brewing. I've talked about it for a number of sermons now over the last few weeks. There's this battle brewing between Jesus and the kingdom that Jesus is bringing, 
and the kingdom of the Jews that is already present and that it's represented by the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, the, uh, here we see the chief priests and the scribes and, and all of those religious sort of elites and those uh, leading the practice of Judaism in the land. So Jesus' kingdom is coming to battle, if, if, as it were, the, the kingdom of the Jews that is represented by them and their religious practices. And my hope is that this morning in this passage that we'll get at least a fuller picture of the kind of religion that God despises, that God truly despises, and how that's different than the kind of religion that Jesus is coming to establish. So Jesus has been since the beginning of the book of Matthew, you're, you may remember, undermining the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the religious leaders. He's been undermining it since the beginning of the gospel. You'll probably remember back in Matthew five twenty. I know you've all got it memorized. Uh, he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You imagine what kind of statement that is in that time to say that about the religious leaders of the day. If your righteousness doesn't exceed theirs, you're not going to get into the kingdom of heaven. And then after he says that, he follows that with a series of paragraphs where that all begin in the same way. It all begins with, you have heard it was said, but I say to you. And when he says, you have heard it was said, he is correcting the pharisaical teaching of the day. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, the scribes, the elders, the chief priests, they're all teaching in the way that Jesus describes when he says, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. He's correcting their understanding. As an example, he says, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I say to you that whoever looks at a woman or another person lustfully, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So he's correcting that pharisaical teaching of the Pharisees. They might teach something like the letter of the law, but Jesus is getting to the intent of the law. He, he, the Pharisees, he, he gives another example. He's, he says they teach, do not commit murder, but I say to you. And he says the intent of that is that whoever is angry with his brother in his heart has already committed murder and is liable to judgment. So first thing is we have to understand that the kingdom of the Jews, that is the religious system that's led by the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes, and and all of those, and, and really the temple in Jerusalem, the kingdom of the Jews doesn't teach the spirit of God's law. The kingdom of the Jews does not teach the spirit of God's law. They might read the Old Testament. They might look at the letters that are written down. They might read them and describe them. But they don't teach the intention of God's heart in giving that commandment as Jesus does. But then Jesus also, just a little bit later than that, calls them hypocrites. In Matthew 6, 5, he says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. The kingdom of the Jews is a religion of hypocrites who simply do what they do in order to be seen by others. 
the kingdom of the Jews is not only not teaching the spirit of God's law, but it's also a kingdom of hypocrites who just want to be seen by others. But then we get just a little bit later on in the gospel, and Jesus is eating with some tax collectors and some sinners in Matthew 9, and, and they're having none of this. In Matthew 9, 11, 13, it says, When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So again, he's undermining the teaching of the Pharisees and undermining the entire religion of the Jews, the kingdom of the Jews, because he's saying that the kingdom of the Jews is a religion built on self-righteousness. That's all you are. You're self-righteous hypocrites who don't actually give to the needy what they actually need. But the biggest problem of all that Jesus eventually gets to in Matthew, the biggest problem of all that we see in this book is that the, the, peop, the leaders of this religious system uh, see Jesus as he heals a demonic man, and they say this in 22, uh, Matthew 12, 22, Jesus healed him so that the man spoke and saw, and all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. The kingdom of the Jews is a religion that doesn't recognize Jesus as the Messiah. And that is the principal problem. They do not recognize Jesus as the Messiah. Jesus tells us not only that they don't recognize him, but just after that, that God has actually hidden this from them. He's hidden this from the religious elites and the powerful in society, and He has revealed it to His little children. He says that in Matthew eleven twenty five. He says later, He teaches in parables. The disciples ask Him, why do you teach in parables? And He says, I teach in parables so that they will hear but not understand, so that they will see but not believe. Because God has hidden it from their eyes. It's not just that they don't recognize Jesus. It's that God has blinded them that they cannot see who Jesus is. And ultimately, He tells them that He's not going to demonstrate any sign of His majesty before them except for His resurrection. He calls it the sign of Jonah. That's the, last, that's the only sign you're going to see. You're going to see the sign of Jonah that testifies to my power, the resurrection. So this kingdom that Jesus is coming to uh, destroy is the kingdom of the Jews. He's doing battle with it. And the kingdom that He's bringing is undermining it from the get-go. It's turning it asunder. It's bringing it down to its knees and ultimately will crumble it. That brings us to our passage this morning. This scene in the Gospel of Matthew is not very long. It's a pretty short passage. But in this scene, in this, what is it, six verses maybe? In this little scene are three Old Testament quotations by Jesus. And two Old Testament allusions by Matthew and Jesus. 
And that follows last week where Matthew's already told us that Jesus riding into town on a donkey fulfills an Old Testament prophecy from the book of Zechariah. So there's clearly Matthew's intention is to help us, the readers, see that although Jesus is coming in to undermine the kingdom of the Jews, to bring the temple down to ruin, to undermine the religious authority of the, the Jewish elites, he is by no means rejecting the Old Testament. In fact, he is fulfilling the Old Testament. And all of his actions last, that we saw last week were in fulfillment of the Old Testament. Just as he has criticized the chief priests, he criticized the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders, he has also been quick to say about the Old Testament in Matthew 5.17, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So he's not rejecting the Old Testament. He's not rejecting God's law. He's giving its intention. And he's saying that everything that you're seeing right now has been altered, has been changed, and is not what God has originally instituted. He's coming to bring salvation to his people. In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus has just come from the back of a donkey, and he has, with many people around shouting that he is the son of David, now he's going to go into the temple where he is going to drive out some money changers, he's going to turn over some tables, he's going to be what we might say is angry Jesus here in this scene, it looks like. Um, but in this passage, we're going to see two points that I think sum up the real problem that God and, and Jesus in this passage has with the kingdom of the Jews as it's represented by this temple. The first is that God rejects insincere ritual. God rejects, and you might say even Jesus rejects here, insincere ritual. Look at verse 12. Jesus entered the temple and he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. So Jesus comes in and he, he drives out all the money changers. He overturns the tables and he turns over the seats of, of those who sold pigeons. We're told in other Gospels he grabs a whip of cords and he drives them all out, the sheep and oxen and all, all, all of the beasts that are there in this little uh, courtyard. Now, believe it or not, though, the people that are doing all of this are actually necessary to temple worship. To, to one degree or another, they are necessary for temple worship. They're not inherently bad just because of what they're doing. The money changers are there because as we've already seen in previous passages, there's lots of people coming from far and wide with Jesus into Jerusalem. They're coming from Galilee, even further north than Galilee, from east and west, from south. They're coming from all over the place to come to the temple. And one of the things that they have to do, because there's three currencies that flow throughout the land, is they have to take their money and they have to exchange it for something that called Tyrian coins. Tyrian coins are the closest thing they have in the land to pure silver. And so they have to do that in order to pay the temple tax. So if they've got a Roman coin or a Greek coin, they have to exchange that for a Tyrian coin that is closer to pure silver so that they can pay their temple tax. So the money changers are actually necessary. They're there to exchange that, those coins. Then also there's people selling sacrifices there in the temple. They're also necessary to one degree or another. 
for a couple of reasons. First, imagine if you're living all the way in Galilee, and you're trying to bring to Jerusalem a, a one-year-old lamb without spot or blemish or any such thing, all the way down to Jerusalem. How many of those people, out of the thousands that are coming into town, the estimate is some 150,000 people coming from all over the land, all of them coming into Jerusalem, how many of them you think are going to lose that spotless lamb? How many times do you think that spotless lamb is going to wander off and go, where did you, I thought you had it. Well, I thought you had it. How many times do you think a lamb is going to be devoured by a lion? All right? And then how many times do you think somebody who may be a carpenter doesn't have a lamb to bring? All right? A number of times this is going to take place. And so what they do is they come down there and they buy with their money a lamb already uh, raised and already kind of portioned off for the purpose of selling it. So the people selling sacrifices in the, in, in the, or around the temple area are somewhat necessary for some people who come far and wide. We also see that there's pigeons being sold here for the poor who can't afford a lamb, a spotless lamb, without blemish or sacrifice or any such thing. So some people in, uh, around the temple are necessary to sell these things and to exchange coins in order for the worship at the temple to actually happen. Jesus, however, is angry about it for a particular reason. Now, often, I think, what gets preached a lot of times and what you've probably heard is that this is understood as some sort of price-gouging racket, that the people that are in the temple are, uh, are jacking up the cost of the lamb or perhaps are not giving a proper exchange rate on the coins that are being, and that, that Jesus is really mad about the ones who are selling, and he comes in and he turns over their tables because they're not giving a fair exchange rate. But I want you to pay attention to what is actually said in the text. It, it gives us a clue as to what Jesus is really mad about. It says he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. Not just those who sold, those who bought. If it was the, an ex, a problem of exchange rate or that they were price gouging, you would think he would be driving out those who sold, not those who bought. He actually has a problem with the whole thing. The whole process that's going on in the temple. The problem isn't what is happening. If it's outside the temple complex, that's one thing. The problem isn't what's happening. It's where it is happening. They're doing this in the temple court. Later we'll call this the court of the Gentiles. It's the place where the entire world could come to the temple and watch the worship of God go on. People who were just curious about what the Jews were doing here in Jerusalem, could come to the temple and just watch what's going on. This is a 35-acre open-air courtyard where everyone gathers. Some are there maybe just to watch what's going on. Others are there to worship the Lord truly, to gather there in His name. And when Jesus walks into this courtyard where the worship of God is supposed to be going on, what does he see? Does he see people praying? No. He sees what might be akin to the New York Stock Exchange. Or maybe it's the New York Livestock Exchange. 
See, the proper use of the temple courtyards, R.T. France says this, is a holy place where prayer and sacrifice is emphasized. And that holiness is, Jesus complains, being destroyed by this commercial and presumably noisy activity. The worship of God is being undermined. It's not that people are selling sacrifices or that people are exchanging currency. Some of that is going to be necessary. It's that what's going on is undermining the actual purpose of the temple. It's distracting. It's changing. It's altering. So when he enters, he cites two Old Testament passages. The first is from Isaiah 56-7, which underscores that the temple, he says, is a place of prayer. My house shall be called a house of prayer. The second is from Jeremiah 7, 11. He says, Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Now, Jeremiah 7 is a passage in Jeremiah that's commonly referred to as Jeremiah's temple sermon. And it's where Jeremiah, the prophet, is told to stand at the gate of the temple and proclaim a message of condemnation by God, against it. So he's preaching against the temple. And the content of the sermon that Jeremiah is preaching in that context is that the people are coming from the outside and they're people that don't belong to the Lord. They're people that call themselves by the name of the Lord, but on the outside don't act like they are of the Lord. They're going around, they're worshiping other gods, They're uh, objectifying people. They're ignoring the poor. They're not acting as though they're part of the Lord's uh, assembly. And then they come in to the temple and they pretend like they're part of the Lord's people. So he says, let's become a den of robbers. That's all it is. This is not a place where people actually worship the Lord. This is a den of robbers. Now remember, the robber's den, or perhaps a, a, a thief's cave, is not a place where stealing happens. Think about it. It's a place where the robber feels secure after he's done the stealing. So he's gone out to do the thieving, and now he's come back to his den as if there in the den he receives some sort of protection. So what Jeremiah and Jesus are saying is that you go out and you live unholy lives and then you come in here and you claim sanctuary as if this temple is some sort of lucky charm for you. That you can rub it and you can feel good about yourself. That you have come in here and received the Lord's protection. And you call yourself the Lord's people, but, but when you go out here, you profane the name of the Lord. You use the Lord's name in vain, as it were. This is seen in the way that they profane the temple courts. Because think about it for just a second. What does a person do who is completely unregenerate on the outside? What do they do when they come into the temple, when they come into the church, and they're in places of leadership and positions of authority? They change it to suit their needs. Who cares about the worship of God? They don't worship the God on the outside. 
So when they come in, what do they do? Well, if they're not Christians on the outside, they don't magically become Christians on the inside. They don't magically have the priorities of Scripture or God's principles in mind. So what then do they do? Well, they bring the sacrifices into the temple. It's easier. Everybody's gathered here anyway. Let's just just exchange the money here. Let's make it a bustling economy right here in the middle of the temple. Prayer? Who cares about prayer? That doesn't matter. Because that's what unregenerate people do. And that's what Jesus is saying. You've come in here and you've made this your den. Like you received some sort of safe haven there. So he comes in and he's purifying the temple by ridding it of all the people, leadership included, who have turned the temple and the prayer and the worship that's supposed to happen there into a distraction. When you take a survey across the landscape of the modern American church, what do you see? How would you describe it? Do you see something that could be described as a house of prayer? Or is it a raucous, busy, distracted event where we claim the worship of the Lord is happening? Well, to answer that question, if it's true that the Pharisees and the leaders have perverted Christ on the outside or perverted God on the outside and then brought that into the temple, then it would serve us to ask ourselves, what do we like? What are our hearts attracted to? What are they inclined to? What makes us really happy? What, what, what kind of worship service would you rather be a part of? Or let's ask the question broadly. When you think about Christians as a whole, Christians you know, you've talked to, Christians as a whole, what kind of worship service do you think the vast majority of Christians would rather be a part of? Would you be more engaged in a service that has wonderful effects, incredible sound, smoking band, It hits every note. Singers that just, they just get me. All the songs be the chart toppers that you sing on your way home? Or would you rather have a service filled with prayers? What if I said that? Come in here. Hey, come here. Pray. Long prayers. Five, ten, fifteen minute prayers, maybe. One prayer right after another. Which service do you think right now, not not what you know you should answer? I mean, which, which service down deep in your heart do you really think would hold your attention better? Which service do you think would really capture your mind better? What's our capacity for prayer at home? The answer is clear, I think, as what passes for worship in the modern church and in church today is little more than emotionalism. It's manufacturing emotions. See, we want to feel some sort of deep connection to God when we leave here. I want to feel something that has changed within me Now track with me for just a second and see if you 
understand what I'm talking about here. Perhaps it's something like we would describe a, a feeling that you get when you first started dating the person that you end up marrying. You know, the, 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 the feeling that you get when you're around them, that, that kind of feeling. Perhaps it's something like that. Or maybe it's the kind of euphoria that you feel when you sit down for coffee with that friend from old and you sit down and you talk for a long time and you get up and you, you have that sort of really good, just sort of warm feeling. It's very difficult to describe, but I think most of you probably know what I'm talking about. We want that feeling. And the point is, there is this feeling that we, that we want to get out of worship where our emotions reach a maximum level. Where we leave, and maybe it's, our, maybe it's even sadness. We want to be brought to tears by the power of that song, or the way the instruments played, or the gripping way the pastor got us right there at the very end. Or We want to feel that sense of sadness so that we're brought to tears, and we don't feel like we've worshipped God unless we get there. Or maybe it's joy. We want to be brought to such an exuberant level that we're on cloud nine when we leave. We are the utmost happy, more happy than we've ever been all week. This really helps to prepare me for my week ahead. Maybe it's excitement. We leave and we want to feel I'm impenetrable. Get out of the way, devil. You ain't seen nothing yet. You can't bring me down. No, no. We want the worship service to raise our endorphin levels a notch or two. And in those worship services, that emotional, we call it the mountaintop experience, becomes the chief end. That's what we're going for. And it's an unsuccessful worship service unless we hit that. The problem is that this so-called intimate connection with the Lord that we feel in that moment is often just our flesh being pumped up by emotional manipulation. Churches and worship leaders, pastors, musicians, all know how to manipulate the motions, the emotions of an audience so as to produce that feeling of euphoria. In fact, you probably intuitively know it as well. When you gather together in a crowd, it could be a sales convention, or it could be a worship service, and the person gets up on stage, having not said a thing, and says, let's, let's all clap! Clap your hands! Everybody together starts clapping in unison. He hadn't said anything yet, but everybody's clapping. Why? Because just like you've heard the mob mentality... When people get together and there's anger and bitterness from one, it can quickly spread to another. So can joy and excitement do the same thing. Give God some praise! Mm. Everybody starts clapping. Why? Emotional manipulation. It's meant to drum up that feeling of euphoria so that you can leave feeling as though you've worshipped the Lord. And other tricks is turn the music up really loud play that repeating chorus that starts off soft and begins to grow. You start getting whipped up the louder it gets, the faster it gets. Turn the lights down on the congregation so they can't look at each other or be distracted. Instead, they're focused on the bright lights of the stage so that it becomes a 
concert or a performance, and everything is focused on the top-notch people that are on stage. And speaking of performance, it has to be smooth. All the transitions have to be worked out. You can't let any dead air work its way in there. No awkward silence. The last thing you want is that kind of dead air because that works against the feeling of euphoria. Speaking of which, children, they need to be gone because if they start crying in the middle of the service, well, I get distracted and then the feeling of euphoria is completely gone. Let's move them off to the children's building so that we can actually do our work here in the worship service. All the while, the church that engages in that kind of emotionalism in worship is participants walk out and they feel as though, I've really worshipped the Lord. Because I have that sense of euphoria in my heart. In reality, they've worshipped themselves. Because their emotions have become front and center. It's my emotions that need to reach maximum level. We've turned worship of the one true and living God into a raucous, busy, distracted event because the people that fill our pews and our pulpits much like the Jews in this scene, don't actually know God. So what kind of worship do they lead when they come in here? Something that's raucous pumps you up. Something that people will be attracted to. But they've rejected the actual worship of God because their hearts can only be engaged by entertainment. Their heart knows no greater affection than entertainment. But God has said, surely His word matters in this. If He's the one we're worshiping, surely how He wants you to worship Him should matter, shouldn't it? What He has said, shouldn't that weigh into the equation of what a worship service looks like? We learn from His word that we are supposed to pray to Him, We're supposed to sing to Him. We're supposed to confess our sins to Him. We're supposed to learn from His Word. See, it's not about driving your emotions at all. Jesus is driving the money changers and the animal sellers out of the temple complex because they've taken their idolatrous pagan worship on the outside of the temple and they've brought it into the inside. And they've exchanged and changed what God, how God wants to be worshipped. Now He set up worship to be into something completely different that suits their needs. They've demonstrated that, what, that, that they, they honor Him with their lips, but their hearts are far from Him. Their worship is insincere because they've disregarded actual worship for insincere ritual. Well, this is all part of it. This is what we've got to do when we come together. As I look at the landscape of the modern church, I wonder if we haven't done the exact same thing. Except instead of selling sacrifices and exchanging currency, we peddle emotional experiences as the chief end of worship and as our service to the Lord. And I wonder if 2020... And perhaps even 2021, through the COVID-19 pandemic sweeped across our nation, I'm wondering if Jesus isn't once again turning over the tables. 
and driving out the money changers. And all those who peddle false worship. All those who are enthralled by entertainment. You, you can't be attracted to a worship service on a screen for very long. Many will stop going to church and never come back. And the idolatrous worship that they already participated in on the outside may leave the church altogether. Yes, time will tell. But while it's not about a driving emotionalism, it's not as though our emotions are completely disconnected either. We see, second point, that God accepts only sincere praise. God accepts only sincere praise. Look at verse 14. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. That means angered. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies? You have prepared praise And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany to lodge there. So having driven out the money changers and all of those selling sacrifices in the temple, uh, he now turns and he starts healing the blind and the lame. Now, doesn't that strike us as a little odd? It should strike us as maybe a little strange. He's just come in and he has offended a great many people. He's turned over tables. He's driven them out. The other gospel tells with a whip and cord. He has driven them from the temple. I mean, that's a pretty provocative stance when you walk in the temple. Would you at least grant me that? Yeah, absolutely. So then what does he do? Is it start a riot? Does he then turn and start arguing with every person around? And there's a bunch of people clamoring for questions and, and, and we need to do something about this man? No. He turns and he starts healing the blind and the lame. I picture driving them out and turning over the tables as like angry Jesus. And then I, I picture the other as like peaceful Jesus coming to heal the lot. And it's all part of the same scene. One verse right after the other. Why is that? Well, if you remember your Old Testament, there's this particularly odd thing that happens when David comes into the city of Jerusalem to take over Mount Zion. When he comes in, remember at the time, the Jebusites owned Mount Zion. And they've got a fortified wall and all this. And David comes in to take Mount Zion for the Lord from the Jebusites. And the Jebusites see him coming. And they sort of yell over their wall to him in this little mocking tone in 2 Samuel 5, 6. You will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off. Now, they're speaking sarcastically to David because basically they're saying, we could fend you off with our army made up of blind and lame people. We're not worried about you. We'll take you out with our blind and our lame. And so David, just a verse later, takes Mount Zion for himself. He cuts off their water supply and he takes Mount Zion. So in 2 Samuel 5, 8, he says this, Whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. Listen to this. Therefore it is said, the blind 
and the lame shall not come into the house. Okay, so when it says that David hated the blind and the lame, David is referring to the Jebusites and what the Jebusites have called themselves. They've called themselves in their army the blind and the lame, who we're going to fend you off. We're going to defeat you, David. And David has said, I'll show you blind and lame. And he takes care of them right there in front of everybody, and God and everybody. And then he says, well, you know, we're going to get up there. We'll, we'll attack the blind and lame. And so what, they, what it says is, at the very end of this, uh, therefore it is said, the blind and lame shall not come into the house. So the, the writer is giving us an explanation that at some point it became a saying around Jerusalem, the blind and the lame are not allowed on Mount Zion. Well, eventually by the end of the Old Testament, Mount Zion becomes a stand-in turn for the whole city of Jerusalem both Mount Zion and Mount Moriah, where the temple stands, God's people as a whole. It, it, it becomes a, a stand-in term for the whole lot of them. And so what do we see here in this scene? But that Jesus, who is declared to be the son of David, rides into town as its king, takes Mount Zion by driving out the money changers from the temple and those who are selling and those who are propagating false worship and then he welcomes the blind and the lame in. But this time, not just welcoming them into the house, but healing them. Because this is the kingdom he came to bring. So how do the children then respond when they see this happen? Hosanna to the son of David. The children recognize what's happened here is significant. It's a reversal of that commonly repeated phrase, blind and the lame shall not enter. This man is healing the blind and the lame. This is the son of David. Save us, son of David. Now remember, chief priests and the scribes, they are dead set that this man, Jesus, is not the Messiah. But even still, it seems particularly dense to have a reaction like they do in verse 15. You see that? They become indignant. They're angry. But they're not just angry at what the children are saying. No, look at what Matthew tells us. When they saw the, the wonderful things he did and the children crying out, they became indignant. The religious authorities know that the Messiah will be the son of David. They, they know that and will see that in the next chapter. But they're dead set that Jesus is not the Messiah. So of course they take offense to what the children are saying about Jesus. They're calling him the son of David. Of course they take offense to that because they don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. But what might be more surprising is their offense also comes from the miracles themselves. They see the wonderful things he's doing. And they become indignant. How can you become indignant when the blind and the lame are healed? What would cause someone to be indignant over a kindness like that done to someone else, like healing their blindness or telling them to rise and walk? The answer, I think, is in response, is in the response of Jesus to their question. They ask him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus responds, yep. Yeah, I do. See, their, their question is meant to say, 
<laughs> these children think that you're the Messiah. Aren't, aren't you going to shut them up? Lest you be a, accused of blasphemy? Aren't you going to say something to them? Do you hear what they're saying? And Jesus' response is twofold. First, it's to say, I hear it. I do. Meaning, I'm not going to shut them up. But then second, his response is beautiful because look what he does. He quotes Psalm 8 too, and he says, Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. That is, by the way, a quote from Psalm 8 too. David says that, and David means praise for God. Not only does Jesus say, yes, they're calling me the Messiah. Yes, they're calling me the Son of David. But haven't you read, God's prepared His infants to praise His name? I'll let it happen to me. I'll let them praise me. Blasphemy for being called the Messiah? Watch this. I am. Before Abraham was, I am. But then not only that, he cuts it off. He quotes Psalm 8 too, but he cuts it off mid-sentence. So the, the Pharisees and the scribes, the people that are around, that are, that are interacting with him here, no doubt know the rest of the quote. They're probably even repeating it in their mind as he cuts it off strategically, mid-sentence. The rest of the quote, so it says, Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. He's applying that part to them. And he doesn't say a word. What would cause someone to be indignant over a kindness done to someone else, like healing blindness or lameness, because they're an enemy of God? And Jesus is implying that here. You hate this because you're an enemy of God. You have perverted the temple because you are an enemy of God. They're blind. But more than that, as I said earlier, God has hidden these things from them and He has revealed them to little children. Remember Matthew eleven twenty five, 25 where He quite literally says exactly that? We are watching Matthew eleven twenty five 25 play out right in front of us. Thank you, Father. You have hidden these from the wise and understanding and you have revealed them to little children. We're watching that play out right here. The sincere praise from the children comes as a response to who Jesus actually is. They see Him for who He is and they immediately react with praise. But the children have had their hearts prepared by whom? By God for this moment. The children have had their heart prepared while the leaders are blind, the children's heart has been prepared by God to see the healing of the blind and the lame and to say, save us, son of David. Chief priests and scribes, they see the same miracle, see the exact same thing happen, and hear the response of the children, and what is their reaction? They become angry. How can you possibly explain the difference between those two different reactions? 
How can you explain the difference between two people who sit in a worship service and say, those songs brought me to my knees in repentance. That sermon hit me in the gut. And another person say, that was boring and awful and I'm leaving. How can you explain the difference between those two reactions? Both to the same Word of God. It's that God has prepared praise coming from His people. Worship that is acceptable is sincere worship because it is the worship that God has prepared in His people to reflect back to Him. It's a work of the Holy Spirit that has come into their heart and changed it and has prepared their heart to worship Him in this way. It comes from a heart that truly believes because it is regenerate. And that's exactly what the children are demonstrating here. The spiritual eyes that can see Jesus and believe that He is their Savior. And out of their sincere belief, then they cry out in worship. Then all the emotions come. Out of sincere belief, then all the emotions come. So it's not as though we're emotionless in worship, that we just stand there and chant like ancient monks. But those emotions don't have to be extracted from you. They don't have to be manipulated in you. They don't have to be cajoled. The production up here doesn't have to be a production. It doesn't have to be flawless. People on stage don't have to, be, don't have to sing and hit every note. A sermon doesn't have to be just, as I just did, unstammering. We don't put on a production that looks like something done in a studio. We sing, we pray, we confess sin, we hear about forgiveness from His Word, we read Scripture together, we confess truths that we believe. We hear the word preached. We participate in the Lord's Supper. We celebrate baptism from time to time. This is what God has ordered His people to do in worship. It's not emotional manipulation. These ordinary means of grace is how God is to be worshipped. And from these activities comes a genuine emotional response from prayer, from the reading of the Word, from singing, from the Lord's Supper. Hearing the Word preached comes a genuine emotional response from the hearts of those for whom He has prepared His praise. Is your worship genuine? Ask yourself, is your worship genuine? The telltale signs of insincere worship. It's not definitive. I can't look at it and say, that is proof that your worship is insincere. But, if you're analyzing yourself, telltale signs are boredom in worship. And just think about it. It's logical, right? If you are engaged 
with the Lord in worship through the ordinary means of grace that I've described, prayer and preaching and singing and those kinds of things. If you're engaged by those things, if that's, that's the kind of praise he wants and that's the kind of praise he has prepared his people to give him, if that is what is to engage your heart in worship with God, but you're bored by them, what does that say? Worship that isn't genuine isn't worship. And it's the kind of thing the Lord detests. It's hypocrisy. Wanting everyone to think that you're worshiping God, but actually you're completely disengaged. But you're here because you want people to think that I am worshiping God. It's hypocrisy. It's self-righteousness because for some reason it makes you feel better that you're here and you're checking off a box than if you were home or doing something else. See, all those things describe the kingdom of the Jews we saw at the very beginning. It's self-righteousness. It's hypocrisy. It's wanting to be seen by others. It's not genuine. See, you can go through the motions, but if it's not sincere, it's not real. Praise fit for the king. It's genuine. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, pray that our hearts be genuine. I pray for my own heart. No doubt there's temptation like any other pastor toward emotional manipulation, toward experiences of euphoria. As Blake and I lead and facilitate worship, no doubt that's there. I pray you would purge it. May we not be a church that's driven by that. But the genuine, authentic worship take place here because you have prepared it from the mouths of your people. I pray you bring your people into this congregation. I pray that those that are right now pretending would hear the gospel preached and would repent of their sin and come and find true and genuine worship. And I pray that the genuine worship that we participate in here would go with us as we leave. That what takes place in our daily lives on the outside, may it be just as genuine. In Jesus' name, amen.